Hello there, listener, and welcome to this week's episode of the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall, and if you've been on your wellness journey for a while, you've been doing the self-work thing, you might have noticed that wellness trends, they come in waves, right? So, you know, we had the multi-level marketing MLM essential oils wave for a while. We've had all kinds of diet waves, right? Like paleo and keto and carnivore for some reason now. And it seemed like about two years ago, everyone I knew was learning tarot for a while. And one of the waves that I have noticed lately that I have really mixed feelings about is it feels like a lot of wellness influencers are out in the world talking about trauma. And I'm going to be honest, it gets my hackles up a bit. And it's not like trauma never comes up when I'm working with my clients. If you've listened to the episode from a few weeks ago on coaching or therapy, um, I talk about holding space when my clients are having a challenging, triggering emotion, but also being responsible enough to make sure they're talking about that trauma with their therapists. And part of why my hackles get up is the fear of some practitioner who doesn't have proper training in trauma maybe not being very ethical and going out in the world and talking about trauma with their clients, bringing up trauma, saying they can heal your trauma, when in reality, an unethical practitioner just trying to pick up on a buzzword could really hurt someone in you know some deep and lasting ways. But at the same time, it's been this wild couple of years. Many of us are learning about trauma's impacts on the mind, the nervous system, the body, and the way that it holds us back from living the power of our authentic selves. And I think that learning is really useful and important. And I want to own at the show, partly because I think visibility in these issues really matters when we're talking about healing and what we think is possible. I am personally no stranger to trauma. And without this becoming uh, an episode where I do my own therapy, (laughs) I was diagnosed with complex PTSD in my 20s. Um, If you've ever heard of the adverse childhood experiences assessment. Um, My ACEs score is not something I would want to brag about, but even just taking that assessment for the first time, I had that moment of, but wait, doesn't this stuff happen to everybody in their childhood? And that in itself was traumatic and triggering. And so trauma can be a complex issue to talk about. It can be, in my opinion, a sticky wicket for the wellness industry. But at the same time, it's so important when we're talking about moving forward toward a life that is authentic and aligned and integrated. So I wanted to do an episode about trauma for a while, but I wanted to do it in a way that was educational, empowering, honest, and above all, ethical. And I cannot think of a better person to share this topic with us than today's guest. She's a well-being expert. She's got a master's in applied positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania, which we're no stranger to on this show. We love UPenn math grads, of course. Um, She's a current psychiatry resident at Mount Sinai, which I would say, yeah, qualified to talk about trauma. And she is the co-author of this book right here, which I don't know if I've ever kicked off an episode endorsing a book before, but we're going to do it right now. It is Choose Growth a workbook for transcending trauma, fear, and self-doubt. She wrote it with friend of the pod, Scott Barry Kaufman. Our guest today is Jordan Feingold. Jordan, welcome to Better Than Fine. Thank you so much for having me, Darlene. I'm so excited. 
I'm excited to get to finally talk to you about this book that I love, about the work that you do. Um, and I'm sure you just heard me say about a thing I think we all need to talk about, <laughs> but let's do it in a good, positive, additive, constructive way. Yeah? Sure. Let's do it. Let's do it. So your book is titled Choose Growth. Uh, I think very few people are familiar with the concept of post-traumatic growth. I know learning it for me was really huge in my own journey, like learning how much trauma I had that I was pretending I didn't have and yeah. feeling like, oh, well, I guess I got PTSD forever now. Nope, there's another option. Can you yeah. just share with us what post-traumatic growth is, um, yep. what, what you think we should know about it? Sure. So... Post-traumatic growth is kind of like the cool, more positive cousin of PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which many listeners have probably heard about. Um, and it is actually highly related to PTSD. So if PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, is um, a response to trauma that leads to difficulty regulating emotions, avoidance, intrusive thoughts... Um, things like nightmares and hypervigilance, um, it's, it's actually not very common in response to trauma. It's the least common outcome of trauma. Post-traumatic growth is when someone has experienced a traumatic event or a series of traumatic events. It doesn't have to be one single event. Um, and their worldview shifts in some way as a result of the trauma. But what happens is in the aftermath, there is a consolidation, there is a deliberate processing mediated by social support that can happen. And what people may find is that this event, which they never would have asked for, they never would have wanted this to happen, but it can actually lead to pretty beautiful things. And that on the list of those things is a greater appreciation of life a greater identification of relationships in one's life and a, an appreciation of social support, opportunities to use personal strengths, a greater sense of spirituality, greater creativity, and a, a new orientation or direction for purpose in one's life. So it's sort of the positive changes that ensue from traumatic events that we never would have asked for. And the idea is not that we want, we're better off necessarily that these traumatic things happened. Certainly, we, if we could go back and erase these things from our lives, we could, or we would maybe want to do that. But the idea is that we can't change the past and rather we can work, do our own inner work, work in community, work with a therapist or coach to help foster these changes so that we recognize time only moves in one direction. We can't change the things that happen to us, but, or I should say, and we can yield in some positive changes as a result. Yeah. I've, I've got a few loops I want to circle back to on yeah. there because I feel like you gave us a wealth to start with. Um, the first one, it occurs to me, maybe we should just talk about like, what is your definition of trauma? Because yeah. I'm seeing a lot of stuff thrown around out there and some of it I know I don't like. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting because the DSM, our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, um, diagnose or sort of defines what is called criterion A trauma, which is they say is necessary for a diagnosis of PTSD. And that is um, an experience uh, that is a personal or vicarious experience uh, that makes, I, I'm butchering the exact um, wording of the <laughs> DSM, and we can certainly pull it up to get it exactly right, but it's about real or imagined death, that someone 
believes in a real or someone experiences something in a real way or vicariously that their life is threatened in some way and it activates the nervous system such that they are there they are feeling like their life is in danger this and i believe there are certain um exclusion um criteria that um do not may meet that but won't count as criterion a trauma and it may be worth actually pulling this up the reason I don't know it so well is because I actually don't buy into this fact of, yeah. that we need criterion A trauma. Um, you mentioned complex PTSD, and um, this is not a DSM identified diagnosis, <laughs> um, but what it really refers to is pro multiple prolonged traumas that occur over the course of a person's life, which absolutely I believe constitute trauma. And the way Scott and, and I in this book and in my practice define trauma is it's in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. If someone experiences, two people can experience an identical event. And for one person, it's not really seen as traumatic. You know, there are certainly events we may say are in and of themselves traumatic, traumatic, you know, rape, child abuse, physical abuse, neglect, a lot of people who go through these experiences, though, don't even know in the moment, they don't encode them in that moment that they are what they are. Um, and two people may experience it, experience them very differently. One person may be totally fine in the aftermath and not experience intrusive thoughts. They may not experience hypervigilance. And another person certainly may. So I think the that's all a very long-winded way of saying that <laughs> trauma is in the eye of the beholder. And I am not going to say what is traumatic for a person. Yeah. Um, I think that's for them to say. Yeah, I appreciate that framing because, you know, for the listener, the DSM is the diagnostic manual that a mental health professional would use to say like, okay, here are the criteria, just like, you know, the flu has particular symptoms and then you take a flu test. Um, the DSM is like, okay, here's mental health stuff. And so like you're saying, class A trauma in the DSM is one thing, right? We're going to label it that kind of, of mental health condition. Um, but I appreciate what you're saying about, you know, two people can experience the same event, come away. One says, yeah, that was trauma. One says it's not. And the way I've heard it framed, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, is that um, it has to do with the challenge to your schema, right? Like your belief of how the world works and your place in it and your role in belief systems around that somehow become challenged or threatened in a way that you then can't reintegrate back to a normal state of being. Um, do, you, do you have any thoughts or reflections on that framing? Yeah. So what's really interesting about that whole idea of one's worldview being completely shifted and their, their schemas being sort of uplifted from under them. Tadeshi and Calhoun, who first wrote about this concept, called that like a seismic shift, like an earthquake. Mm -hmm. It just totally cracks the ground from underneath. That's actually a necessary step for post-traumatic growth. Yep. And what happened, what you mentioned, it's the challenge to the reintegration post-traumatic growth is when we can actually successfully reintegrate those schemas mm. and it's the reason why ptsd is actually highly correlated with post 
with post-traumatic growth. There needs to be some disruption to the psyche, some disruption to one's worldview in order to have an impetus to growth from to grow from trauma. It doesn't just emerge la-di-da when we're feeling great. This is something <laughs> that <laughs> this is something I'm that just actually, gonna challenge my worldview this afternoon. <laughs> exactly. And we and you know, that's not to say of course we can grow from positive experiences. Of course we can grow from things like, you know, if someone sees this as positive, having a child, getting married. There are certainly life events and positive things, getting a promotion that can lead to growth. But post-traumatic growth necessarily challenges one's worldview in a way that is potentially, it, there's trauma involved. It, do, it can be paradigm shattering. Well, I think to your point, as we we're like sifting through this, right, you said Tadeshi and Calhoun talked about like this earth shattering experience, but it's not like there aren't smaller versions of this, right, right. where people are challenged or pushed or learn something that they didn't know, let's say about their family tree, and it changes their perception of themselves, right? It doesn't have to be huge right. to prompt the kind of introspection and um, unpacking and learning that can lead to growth or stress. Right? I, I, th I think that's totally right. I, I just read a fantastic book um, called What My Bones Know by Stephanie Fu about complex mm. PTSD. There was never an experience that she had that was like one single traumatic event. The result of who she became by the time she was writing this book and going through her own process. And I would certainly say it sounds like I, through listening to the book that she experienced post-traumatic growth. And I, I would be so curious to talk to her about that. But there was not a single near-death experience that she had or a single time. It was really a summation of dysfunctional family environment, neglect, abusive parenting that um, sort of created this constellation of um, who, who she is. And, um, so, and, and then again, I work a lot. A lot of the work that I do is with veterans who have been in combat or have been non-combat veterans who have been there to see a com one of their comrades' bodies. And um, there are multiple sort of criterion A traumas that they went through too. So um, I think it's really important just to really like not hold on to such a strict definition of what constitutes trauma because it really is yeah. different for everyone. Yeah, I appreciate you framing that as a spectrum. Um, I know I've talked to people who minimize their, you know, like if we think of it as a series of little T traumas mm -hmm. um, and, oh, well, it wasn't that bad. No one was, you know, insert horrible thing here. And on the other end of the spectrum, I know I've encountered, you know, the work I also do with veterans um, where other people's traumas, they feel pale in comparison mm -hmm. to what some vets or rape survivors or, or pick, right. um, pick your potentially traumatic, big T traumatic experience. So I think helpful to, for everyone to hear that it doesn't have to be, you know, I, I was in a life-threatening car accident when I was 18. It doesn't have to be that big to have a ripple effect in your psyche and your worldview. Um, you're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Darlene Marshall, and our guest today is fellow MAP alumnus uh, and author Jordan Feingold, the author of Choose Growth, along with our friend Scott Barry Kaufman. Um, so what do you think it is? You know, I, I think it's very interesting that you mentioned that PTSD is actually the least common outcome of trauma, especially because I think most people have heard of PTSD and maybe not heard of growth processes. Mm -hmm. 
how do we as individuals, as a collective, what does it look like to shift towards growth? What is, is it a moment? Is it a series of moments? How do we open that invitation for ourselves? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I think it's a, it's a lifelong process and sort of a daily commitment mm. and it may not feel accessible every single day, but it is more, it is more of a long-term process than something I think that happens in an acute moment, even though there may be an acute moment that becomes the impetus to lean into a growth process. So I think the first step is breaking down this notion that like, you were mentioning before, like suffering is a competition, like comparing mm. my suffering to another person's suffering, whether that is undermining my own suffering because it seems to pale in comparison to someone else's or completely um, becoming isolated in our own suffering because we don't think that anyone could possibly understand. Um, I think that I've seen both ends of the spectrum happen. And it's really meeting ourselves where we are, recognizing the role that our traumas are having on us. And sometimes we can't do this alone. We have This has to be in concert with our social support networks, a therapist, a counselor, a coach, someone to help us realize that trauma has its its mark on our bodies. And this, you know, we, we didn't talk about this, but this isn't only trauma that we've experienced, that we've actually, what we know from epigenetic research is that trauma can be inherited from family members throughout our gene, through our epigenetics. The the molecules that sit on top of our genes and change how our genes are expressed. So maybe we haven't personally experienced anything life-threatening, but maybe when we were in the womb, our mother was chronically undernourished or her in her childhood or in our father's childhood, they experienced something traumatic and that these things actually, um, unfortunately, can exist within us even if we haven't experienced them ourselves. Um, so often the like recognizing and leaning into the growth process has to acknowledge that we have been, whether vicariously through our epigenetics or personally been through something that we need to face and confront head on. It's so much easier to avoid these things and avoidance, experiential avoidance is at the core of PTSD and sort of what we what we want to move away away from. Yeah, I, I think you also bring up a, a, a bigger point or a related point that I want to, um, you know, weave together for the listener. I think so often we talk about these as psychological um, processes, right, like thought processes. Mm -hmm. But as you said, epigenetic expression is just one way it shows up in the body, right? Yeah. Like, the somatic imprint of trauma on the nervous system, on your hormone profile, on your sleep quality, right? There's all these other ripple effects in someone who is experiencing trauma. Mm -hmm. And also, I, I think for me personally, and for certainly some clients I've worked with, those physiological hallmarks are a lot of worthwhile information Absolutely. that allow them to continue integration and growth, right? So I know a lot of times in conversations I've heard on P on post-traumatic growth, talk about journaling, no, no shade on your workbook. Mm -hmm. uh, we talk about rewriting the trauma story, but there's also a huge like breath work and movement and mm -hmm. um, just the positive feedback loops that one can experience in their own body that can be greatly healing. I don't know if you want to speak to that. I know you also are very much a... a a whole self practitioner, which is something yeah. I really appreciate about you. 
Yeah, I think um, this the separation of the mind and the body is like I'm on a crusade to reintegrate the mind <laughs> and the body because it's so absurd that we treat these things in silos because they're so fundamentally related. Um, you know, I, there are countless patients I've seen come in with a physical complaint only to realize when you unpack what's going on in their life, they're grieving or they have had, you know, a new trauma can, uh, un can unmask past trauma. So like they think they've yeah. processed something in their childhood, then they get a new onset cancer diagnosis, for example, and suddenly they're back on the battlefield. Suddenly something that they haven't thought about in 20 years becomes their new, comes back into their consciousness. So, um, you know, I see people, we call these things in psychiatry conversion disorders. When someone comes in with a physical complaint that really represents some sort of repressed uh, psychological phenomenon. But so part of this is um, really helping patients and clients attune to the sensations in their bodies, to be really connected to their bodies, to say something doesn't feel right or um, why is my heart beating so fast right now? Like, why can't I sleep? Like, this is unusual for me to really identify when there are these aberrations in our physiology, because so often they really represent unconscious processes that are going on in our minds that happen to be manifesting themselves physically. Yeah. My, my brain is still doing backflips over the idea of calling it a conversion disorder, right? Where it's like, yeah, but you're, I think again, you and I are of like mind, you are a holistic integrated being, you know, exactly. organism. And we don't get to just say like, oh yeah, that's, that's in your head. You're just feeling it in your body or whatever. It's like, no, it happened to you as a human as being. A whole person. Can we stop trying to break the puzzle pieces apart? It's not a puzzle. Right. It's a photograph. Right. And, and pay, people get so invalidated. Like if oh, yeah. anyone listening has ever been like a doctor or a professional has ever said, oh, don't worry about it. There's nothing wrong with you. Like all the tests were negative, you know, it, it's in your, they, they may say, or they may imply it's sort of in your head. And, you know, this is, these are the people that I say, call, you know, I, I want to work with you. Come to me. There is something wrong just because I can't, my test isn't pointing to it, or there was no molecule that I can pinpoint in your blood that's abnormal. Doesn't mean you're fine. Doesn't mean that there's nothing wrong. Um, there's this whole concept of illness, the, the experience of suffering without something identifiable that we would consider disease in our biomedical model. And um, these things are distinct and um, we can have illness without disease. Um, it's why none of our psychiatric illnesses are actually called diseases. We don't actually have, you know, more with, with better biomedical science, we're actually starting to understand the pathways and um, some of the neural networks that are associated with some of these things like PTSD. But um, it's a disorder. It's not a disease. Yeah. And, you know, I heard the the term on a podcast yeah, I was listening to yesterday, psycho, or excuse me, um, biobabble, you know, the way they say mm -hmm. like psychobabble around mm -hmm. like Freudian analytical therapy, um, that now we're in the era of biobabble where mm -hmm. every biohacker, every like dude bro on the internet, every, you know, wannabe neuroscientist is out here just like, throwing out telomeres um, and <laughs> yeah yeah my telomere length and yeah, the way it affects that. my heart rate variability yeah. like and I'm, I'm not saying we don't we do it on this show too but um we try to do it in a respectful way but the point of the comment was that with all this bio babble we're pretending we know 
when there's so much we don't know. Yeah. And I think in, in this area, like you're talking, okay, you're experiencing symptoms. We can't point to a blood test or a urinalysis or whatever. Oh, well, you've, you've been really stressed. Mm-hmm. It must be like, oh, you lost your grandma to COVID. Um, it's the grief. It's in your head. No, you're feeling it in your body because yeah. you're, because trauma doesn't just happen to your mind, right? It happens right. to you, yeah. the person. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We're of like mind. Um, you're listening to the Better Than Fine podcast. I'm your host, Arlene Marshall. My guest today is Jordan Feingold. And we are talking about how we choose growth after trauma. Certainly, many of us have been able to identify our traumas in a whole new way. <laughs> this, uh, I hate saying post-pandemic era because it doesn't mm-hmm. feel fair. Um, yeah. But a moment ago, you brought up rumination. And there yeah. is something in your book, one of the biggest takeaways that I encountered that I hadn't encountered anywhere else before, and I so appreciate it, um, is the difference between intrusive rumination and deliberate mm-hmm. rumination. So can you start by just sharing with our listener yeah. um, what rumination is? And yeah. Then- the difference here and why it can be useful. Cause I think so often we're taught that our ruminating thoughts are bad and we should get mm-hmm. away from them, but that's not really accurate. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So if anyone has ever had a thought in their head or maybe they're in the shower or falling asleep and they're thinking they're reprocessing an experience, maybe it's something they went through that day They're you know, and it can be positive of like, Oh, reliving that positive experience or, Oh, I sounded like such an idiot. What did they think of me? But it's kind of this, um, it can be cyclical. Um, you're coming back to similar things over and over again, like a, a ruminator, like a cow literally brings up <laughs> yeah, its cut and a ruminant literally um, brings it up, uh, regurgitates it and, and re-swallows it. So it's like the mental version of that. And um, often in psychopathologies like anxiety in depressive depressive disorders in PTSD and obsessive compulsive disorder, these ruminations happen without our conscious. I, I, I think they're they happen so unconsciously and automatically, and they come in at times that are not particularly convenient, and they disrupt mm-hmm. our sleep. They may prevent us from focusing when at our jobs, and it they're totally intrusive. Um, we're, they're not welcome. We don't want to be having them. They're getting in our way and they're causing some level of debility. That's an intrusive rumination. It can happen when we're sleeping in the form of a nightmare. Um, so those are intrusive ruminations or intrusive thoughts. We can also have deliberate ruminations. We can schedule times, whether it's with a therapist during a session or a coach or with a friend or a colleague to to process these same thoughts, but in a way that we're actually opening the door and saying, welcome, I want to be engaging with you right now. And one of the correlates of of post-traumatic growth, but is not associated with PTSD, is this process of moving some of these intrusive ruminations to deliberate ruminations. And those things are med- have found to be mediated in the literature by social support. So having someone mm. to assist 
with this. It's really hard to do this on our own. It takes a lot of like top-down frontal regulation, which can be impaired when we are traumatized. Um, and we're all in that base of our brain, amygdala, our lizard sort of ancestral brain. That turns down all of our top-down thinking. We need to, we often need to engage others to really be deliberate about how we, how we migrate that rumination. And if someone is looking, well, first of all, I think they just want to echo the social support, right? Mm -hmm. Like you're probably not going to try to open up that can of worms on your own. But I think what I hear you saying is like the productive aspect of deliberate rumination is revisiting the things that are intruding mm -hmm. in a safe way that helps you make sense, right? And integrate and grow, right? That's what we're here to talk about, right? It's choosing growth. Exactly. I think um, having intrusive thoughts can be really scary and really uncomfortable. And it makes us want to avoid those topics um, in our like sort of conscious daily lives because it's really uncomfortable to experience those things. And I think we have this false sense as humans, the more mental attention I give to this thing, the bigger it's going to be. And that's actually a false perception. That's not the way avoidance works. The more we avoid, the more <laughs> the anxiety magnifies and the more these things can sort of erupt into our daily lives when we don't want them to. And the beauty of deliberate rumination, I, I tell my patients and my friends quite often, schedule time to worry about this. When we actually confront this head on, in the book, I say, like, invite this thought to lunch on a Tuesday. Like, don't mm. shove it under your bed. When you shove it under your bed, it's just going to come in when you're sleeping, when your guard is down. Invite it in, welcome it, but don't leave the door open all the time. Like, this is not a 24-7 open invitation. This is like, come on Tuesday. We'll meet from 12 to 1.30. Like, that's it. Set it's a like a, a dentist appointment, not like a Howard Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I dig it. I dig it. But like you said, there's a very important ingredient here, which is social support. And like I said, in the show open, there are a lot of practitioners out here talking about trauma and wounds and healing. Um, I'm sure some of them are very qualified and others, maybe not so much. And I'm very curious for your thoughts on if a listener is, is hearing this and they're like, you know what, I would love to do some work on my growth other than, again, just getting your book. Um, how, how do we tell the difference between what my husband always calls the charlatans? He says it with like great passion. Oh, that person just a charlatan. He's normally saying yeah. about personal trainers. Um, and the like genuine qualified there, you, you keep saying coaches, I would say therapists, I would say like yeah. clinician. Um, but obviously, you you lump coach in there. So I'm curious your thoughts. You know, we have to meet people where they're at, too. I think this is a scary, it's a scary door to open. A lot of people who've experienced trauma may actually, I say coaches, because these things are hard to talk about and it may be easier to develop a relationship with someone who's focusing on my strengths and who is mm -hmm. really attuned to that because, you know, coaches are great at focusing on strengths. Therapists, some, some therapists are great at focusing on strengths and some psychiatrists are, I, you know, I'm a psychiatrist and many psychiatrists are therapists as well. Um, we're not as oriented to these strengths-based approaches unless you've gone and like sought 
some special training in positive psychology, for example. So it re we have to meet people where they're at. Like for some people, they are going, this is the first time they've ever like done any like self-improvement, self-growth introspection. And maybe a coach is like the, their appetizer to the world of therapy like that. Mm. They may be the entryway. Um, you know, it's, re it's a really hard question, Darlene, because a yeah, in any profession, you're going to have people who are like really good and in it for the right reasons. And it's, a, it's about the patient and it's not about themselves. And then there's always going to, there's going to be people who are not so great and are selling some snake oil. Um, I think anyone who tells you that this is going to be like easy and like, oh, just follow my prescription, like 12 steps to healing, like that is not how this stuff works. I think someone who's saying like, we're going to work on this together and I'm here for you and it might be really uncomfortable. It will, you know, in fact, it will be really uncomfortable, but that we're going to get through that. Um, like that's the stuff of like, I think what a genuine um, practitioner would, would say, because this is not, this is not easy stuff. Yeah. Well, and you nail on the head. Um, it's, it, it's not an easy question, but one I knew that you were up to. <laughs> Um, because it's not like there's any magic certification that we're going to point to that's like, oh, okay, they took that cert, they must be right. qualified. Um, and if I, I certainly know less than awesome therapists and incredible therapists, I'm sure mm -hmm. you know, some less than awesome psychiatrists that you would never send your mom to. Um, but I'd send my mom to you. Oh. And in mm -hmm. any, in any, um, uh, discipline in any profession, there's going to be people who are exceptional and people who are not, but to your point and what I've said on this show many times, what I say on my socials all the time, not everything works for everyone all the time. And if a practitioner ever tells you, Oh, I know, I know the sauce. I know what you need and I will make you better. Just do X, Y, Z. Don't give them your money. Yeah. And, and not even like some great people may not work for every person. Like there needs to yeah. be a great fit. Like you, you know, a big part of work in therapy is something called transference. It's the feel and countertransference on the part of the, um, the therapist to the client. It's um, we all project other relationships onto the person that we're working with. So, mm. um, and that's called transference. So patient may go to a therapist and that therapist may actually bring up really uncomfortable feelings that remind them of an abuser or remind them of a toxic partner. That's not anything that the therapist is doing consciously. And it's not anything that the patient is feeling consciously, but there's something in that relationship, in that dynamic between the patient and the therapist that is activating some sort of uncomfortable feelings. That stuff can be actually the, some of the best stuff to work through if the patient can tolerate it and if the therapist is attuned enough to recognize what's going on. But like after three visits, a patient may be like, I can't take this person. I hate yeah. them and have no idea why and leave um, and go find someone else who is a little safer because they're not yet able to like process and, and withstand that relationship in that time. And these are all unconscious. We're getting into like psychodynamic psychotherapy, and unconscious <laughs> processes, but um, these are very real phenomena. Like if anyone is listening and they're like, wow, I quit my therapist after three sessions. I just hated them. I have no idea why they had really good reviews. Maybe they were perfectly qualified. Like really think like 
did they remind you of someone in your life? Like, did they remind you of your mother? Did they remind you of your father? Um, was there something there that was a barrier to, um, to really opening up to them? Yeah. And I think, I think that, you know, you bring up, we're, like you say, we're right on the edge of like opening up a whole bunch of other stuff. Yeah. But it, it might also be that just like that person's technique or their approach or their toolkit wasn't the toolkit that you needed in that moment. Totally. And you also, you know, brought something else to mind that I, that I want to throw out here is I've had plenty of clients who've worked with me for a couple of months and then they go to therapy. They stop working with me for a while and they go to therapy for six months, a year, two years, and then come back. And I say that because if any coaches are listening and they're like, oh, I keep losing clients because they keep going to therapy. Like, no, it means you did a good job mm. as a coach and you respected your scope of practice totally. because you so effectively communicated with that person what you could do and you supported them on an introspective process. And then they realized they needed something else. You did a good job. I would say if, if I could like a hundred percent, I just want to echo that so much. And, um, it's, yeah, you're so not, that's not a fail. That's not a treatment failure. That is such yeah. a treatment success to get yeah. someone to realize like, I'm ready to go in this deeper way. And I, I think it would be great for someone. And I, this isn't actually something I know the answer to Darlene. Do you have any clients who are in therapy and have a coach and do they All ever the work? Yeah. And do you ever, my clients? that's fantastic. I would love to work with a, like co-manage a patient with a coach. I think that could be so cool. Because of HIPAA regulations, I don't communicate with their therapist directly, but okay. almost everyone I work with at one point or another is either doing concurrent therapy with coaching with me, or we like tag on and off. So they'll yeah. therapy for a couple of months and then come back or, or, you know, we've had various degrees of overlap. Mm -hmm. Um, not every, every, every client, I don't require it, but it is almost everyone. And yeah. the clients who aren't actively in therapy, we will check in throughout their process to make sure like, Hey, are you ruminating outside of mm -hmm. our sessions? I know last time we talked about some stuff that was pretty activating for you. Did you have any nightmares? Did mm -hmm. it affect your ability to go to work? And if the answers are yes, do you think you might want to book a session yeah. with your therapist? Um, yeah, I think it's a, I, we just did an episode on this. I, I, li I listened to it. Like, yeah. I, yeah. It was oh, great. okay. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, yeah. Fan of the show. Ha 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 ha. Yes, well, I am. As we're getting, as we're getting to the end here, it occurs to me, we have not talked about your book very much at all. <laughs> what would you like to share with our listeners about your book? Cause I'm a yeah. fan. I'm a big fan girl of both of you, you and Scott Brie Kaufman. Um, so yeah. What, anything you want to share with us? So, you know, of course, I, I actually think the book has great tools and frameworks for coaches and therapists who may great. be listening to the show, um, who may just want to like really augment their set of tools and um, topics to bring to their clients. And I think that um, it's a, I, I say like for readers and listen, if you want to listen to the audio, there's an audio version of the book. It's great stuff to bring to your coaches and therapists because so much will come up. It's all about understanding how our needs, our basic fundamental human needs have been thwarted through various little T traumas and um, more globally, the last few years of co the COVID pandemic, which has really 
brought some of our basic human needs into question in ways that I think we're still, many of us have not processed and really do need to process, you know, something like our need for connection when that used to be just like this, of course, unmitigated good in our lives became something that was potentially dangerous. dangerous. And um, so it really, uh, I I would say COVID, we wrote this book because the pandemic really was a seismic shift for our society. And um, I think all of us probably can revisit some of what happened um, and realize that our lives changed in many ways. So um, there's, I mean, there's so much good stuff in here. There's like 10 chapters um, walking through our basic human needs from um, connection, self-esteem, exploration, love, purpose, and transcendence, and practices to work on on your own with friends, bring it to your coach or therapist, and um, recognize that this really is a lifelong commitment to to our own growth. Yeah, I I love the framing when I you know I I, I did not throw you softball questions, Jordan. I knew that you could handle it. <laughs> um, and and in the beginning of the episode where you talked about it's it's a daily practice, it right? Is. And the reason I started this episode by just owning like. Now that we're measuring trauma, but my ACEs score is not a thing anyone wants to see, um, is to normalize not only having trauma, but that being in the wellness space, being a positive psychology practitioner, maybe you encounter this too. I find that people make some assumptions about Mm -hmm. me as a person, how I live my life and what that life has been like. And many of them are inaccurate. And I've had quite a few capital T traumas but the choice to get up every day and work on, ooh, I that that was a trigger. Okay, guess we're gonna have some, um, in you know, some deliberate rumination on that later, and working it daily as a choice instead of assuming, oh, it's always gonna be this way. That can be a lifestyle choice too. That's very empowering, and it's something that I had reinforced with your book. And so I thank you for putting it into the world. I think you're, you're helping a lot of people and I appreciate that. It's not going to feel good all the time. And, and we're moving closer to where we want to be. Yes, ma'am. Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really been a pleasure. I've wanted you on the show for a long time. So I'm, I'm grateful to have you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, dear listener, if you are someone who is interested in supporting clients to make positive changes in their own wellness journeys, um, in working specifically as a coach, as opposed to some of the other things we've talked about on today's show, well, the National Academy of Sports Medicine, which is the producer of this show, the, the podcast network that we're on here, they have a wellness coaching certification that's been built by experts in sleep, stress, coaching, neuroscience, movement, positive psychology, Um, If I do say so myself as a contributor to the course, we did a real good job. I'm very proud of it. It's one of the things I'm most proud of in the last few years. Um, That certification, Certified Wellness Coach, is currently 50% off on NASM's website. But listeners to this show can get an additional $600 off, which we are the only place that you can get that discount code. I'm very proud of that too. That code is Marshall CWC, M-A-R-S-H-A-L-L-C-W-C. And it's just our way of appreciating that listeners to this show are probably the kind of person that wants to guide this kind of process with your clients. So you'd go to nasm.org, click wellness at the top, and then use that promo code Marshall CWC.
We'd also love to hear your feedback. So if you want to email me, it's info at darlene.coach. You can find me on Instagram. That's also darlene.coach. And I'm on LinkedIn. We've also got a Substack where you can find information on how to use these practices in your life. That's coachdar.substack.com. And of course, if you're a fan of the show, I hope you've already subscribed. Thank you to everybody who leaves us reviews. Maybe you want to do that too. And of course, if you are sharing about the show, feel free to tag me on social media. I love to hear from you. It really does fill up my heart. So thank you to everyone who's reached out. Thank you. Be well and take care of yourselves.